0: Hi, this is Brandon, and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. This is the fourth and final episode of my series titled, Becoming Affirming. And before I get started, I wanted to briefly look back on what I've discussed so far. In the first episode, I introduced myself, and then I explained how the Lord required me to address this issue personally, and I gave some background on why this topic is timely for me personally. And then I discussed the overall limitations to what I've been talking about in these episodes. In the second episode, I began by giving an idea of how I view scriptural interpretation, and then I discussed why the charge that becoming affirming is not taking the easy way out for Christians. I also covered my thoughts on why not everything going on related to gender and sexuality is all good. In the third episode, I discussed identity and behavior and spent some time considering how cultural expectations play into our sense of right and wrong, and how it's difficult to separate this subjective issues from objective truth. And then I finished with some thoughts on pronouns. In this final episode, I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about grooming, and then discussing the charge that affirming LGBTQ behavior and identity will lead to a breakdown in society. I previously discussed whether LGBTQ people can represent the image of God, but this time I'll talk about how the church's current behavior towards LGBTQ individuals doesn't appear to represent God's character to a watching world. And then I'll wrap it all up with some thoughts about where we go from here, and I'll summarize my thoughts on the matter. So let's get into it, and we'll start with grooming. One of the things I realized is that I need to repent for my conclusions about LGBTQ grooming. You see, I grew up hearing a constant refrain from fellow conservatives about LGB folks, and that was before the TQIA plus stuff was added, and that refrain was, Gays are grooming our children. And I was taught to believe that gays wanted to create more gays, that their master plan and their agenda was to convert children especially into gays. I continue to hear the idea that trans folks are trying to convert others, that they're trying to get their agenda into schools so that more kids will be trans. Now, looking back on that assertion with a new perspective, I now find it unbelievable and, frankly, more than a little silly, to be honest. With all the abuse that LBGTQ folks suffer from conservatives in general, the utter abuse and outright hatred that they receive from Christians in particular— and the mental anguish of living in a body that doesn't conform to its mind, the difficulty getting quality medical care, having to hide every aspect of their true selves from family and friends and employers, and the small pool of potential partners who will accept them. Tell me, who in all honest and thoughtful consideration would actually believe that they'd been trying to bring others into such a painful world? More to the point, because I used to believe that the grooming idea was true— I did my best to avoid being polluted, quote-unquote, by socializing with anyone other than cis and hetero people, so I really had a zero actual opportunity to hear from someone different than me about what they really wanted and what they cared about. And quite importantly, I had zero opportunity to actually share the love of God with people who, to put it bluntly, that I actually hated. Well, that's changed. I've had the opportunity to actually discuss these things a few times now with non-cis, non-hetero people, and I've begun to actually listen instead of my own ideas being imposed on other people without any evidence to stand on. As a result, well, I now hear it differently. Having rejected that grooming refrain, now I hear a simple appeal to not be persecuted, to not be ignored or hidden just to be treated like humans for the first time in their lives. If they are in any way trying to recruit others, it's merely to get some safety in numbers. They don't want to convert anyone, they just want allies who will defend them. The Bible spends a stunningly large fraction of its wording on how to treat people who are marginalized by society. Now, I'm well aware of the responses about protecting America's culture and Christian morals, I personally believe we're doing more harm to Christian morals by treating people like subhumans or lower castes. It fully violates any attempt we might otherwise make to represent the character and the nature of the Heavenly Father and His Son to a world that's looking on. Jesus didn't respond to sinners by calling for their execution or their removal from society. He went into their houses. He interrupted their stoning. He touched unclean people to heal them. He healed unholy days. I mean, he violated pretty much every conservative religious legalism of his time, constantly interacting with the poor and the unclean and the unrighteous and the hated and the feared. Yes, Jesus called sinners to repent. But he didn't do it after telling them that they were only fit to be stoned. He only did it after showing them unrelenting, unfiltered compassion and love. Until we put down the rocks and we spend time in unjudgmental conversation and selfless, agenda-free ministry, in other words, until we know them intimately, we have no right or place to call them to repent. So, a common argument that I've seen in discussing all these matters is that accepting LGBTQ behavior and or marriage as normal, or using they, them pronouns, or any other pronouns, is contributing to the breakdown of our society. Well, I emphatically reject that assertion for several reasons, and I choose to repent of former statements to that effect. For one thing, I now believe that we cannot force society into a Christian box of our preference in any manner that actually glorifies God. He and his laws do not need our defending. Every defense that I can conceptualize violates principles enshrined in our Constitution that governs a pluralistic nation and undercuts the very principles that give me the right to freely practice my own worship of the God that I know and that I love. To do so assaults people and their rights under our laws and also their God-given right to reach different conclusions about what is right and acceptable before their God. Any religious or political box that I helped construct will necessarily only fit my own doctrine. Any box constructed by anyone will always exclude other practicing, God-fearing children of the same living God who simply hold to different doctrinal specifics. And that is exactly why the Founding Fathers emphatically rejected religious tests and state-mandated religions. And for another reason, I've concluded that God himself is addressing some things in the church that desperately need changing, and specifically, how we will treat those with whom we disagree, and how we show his love and his justice and his righteousness to the marginalized and the outsider. If God's hand is behind the stirring of the waters, it's not my place to cling tightly to that which I find comfortable and familiar. Rather, it's my place to ask him To quote David from Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there is any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. I have often heard an argument in Christian circles, and in fact I used to make this argument myself, that every significant breakdown in a major culture was preceded by a breakdown in traditional family values. However, I've looked into that assertion and found that, first of all, it's not as clear a correlation as I had assumed. And second of all, what correlation does exist is not necessarily causation. Changes in family structures and sexual behavior did not necessarily cause the society to fail. They simply occurred in parallel with the failure that occurred for many reasons, many other reasons. And all too often, in fact, the those breakdowns were caused by autocratic or dictatorial rulers who were convinced that their own religious or moral structure could be imposed on the entire society by force. Trying to hold our culture together by forcing marriage and sexuality into a supposedly traditional box will not work. It's often been said you cannot legislate morality. Well, I believe that to be true. Imposing morality on a nation by legal force will not in any way, shape, or form bring revival to that nation. It will only cause further division and strife, and it itself will lead to the destruction of our society and our nation. But treating all people with love and justice will heal divisions and restore society and give our nation a chance to survive. So, from my perspective, society simply is changing, We cannot stop that by passing morality laws, and we were never commanded to do so by the Lord. Instead, we were told strongly to represent the very nature and character of God in our own personal lives and to make disciples, which is inherently a one-by-one process, not a legal matter from the top of society on downward. So that one-by-one process is how we change society. Let's talk for a minute about how we accurately represent God, or in this case, how we inaccurately represent God. I'm increasingly convinced that the conservative church is failing to accurately represent God's character, specifically in how it treats this gender-questioning 30% of an entire generation and those of other generations, and the whole issue of gay marriage and rejection of homosexuality in general. What I see is a stunning lack of love demonstrated towards those who don't fit traditional molds. In fact, it looks to me as if the attitude taken by most Christians is to harshly and blindly apply Paul's principle of 1 Corinthians 5.5, which says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But without accounting for the simple fact that those shunned and demonized and damned by the church will likely never turn to the Lord for his salvation because the God, and I choose to use the lowercase g for that word God, because the God that is represented by the conservative church is so ugly and hateful that they would never have any desire to turn to that God. But instead, the true God is holy and just and gracious and loving and almost infinitely patient But the church is failing in the very thing for which God explicitly created mankind, which is to fully and accurately represent him to a lost and dying world. The church seems far more interested in preserving a specific and comfortable and, frankly, insular culture. Now, I want to apply a caveat here. This entire line of reasoning cannot be used to imply that all this gender and sexual fluidity now is godly it most certainly is not. While there are absolutely those, no small number, whose brains are wired differently than the genitalia or chests or body hair or voice pitch would suggest, I do believe that quite a bit of the current gender and sexual fluidity is faddish and will eventually be, well, regretted, perhaps deeply by some. So it makes sense to me to urge self-restraint and extreme hesitancy in considering taking steps such as abandoning traditional gender nomenclature or having gender reassignment surgery. However, that belief says nothing significant about the general principle at play, which is, I'm beginning to believe that the image of God is not gendered in any actionable way. But at the same time, we know with certainty that the enemy of our souls is a thief and a liar And he attempts to steal and corrupt everything he can to distract us and take away our joy and our attention from God and his kingdom. So he's convincing many, well, many actually normal individuals that they're the wrong gender or sexuality, just as he is simultaneously convincing the conservative church that this is a hill it must absolutely die on to defend the honor of God himself. Well, I believe that both of those are lies, and the resulting battle is deeply harming the church and increasingly setting the stage for its persecution by a society that grows weary of its hateful reactions. I'm instructed by Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares. In Matthew 24, Jesus talked about how his people should handle intermingled sin. And it says, another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, His enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Then how does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather the tares you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So, perhaps then, the correct answer to all this gender confusion is, let it go. Just let it go. Stop trying to pull out the tares, because a lot of wheat is being uprooted and killed, and the resulting damage to the crop is incalculable. The harder it's resisted, the worse it'll get. Rather, show love and grace and acceptance to each human being, no matter the state or the gender or the lack thereof. Some will turn. Some won't. And I'm now convinced that many should not. But at least we will not be destroying hearts and forever chasing them away from the true God by presenting a God which is not accurate. 1 Corinthians 13 starts with this. If I speak with the tongues of mankind and of angels, but I do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions to charity, and if I surrender my body so that I may glory, but do not have love, it does me no good. So the ultimate question becomes, how do we show love? Is it more loving to diligently stand against a flood of change, knowing that we alienate millions from a loving God? I would have believed so until recently. But perhaps it's more loving to accept those wrestling with a very deep, very painful, lifelong identity issue, trusting God to love them either way, and choosing to love them just as selflessly and proactively as Jesus did. So, I'm not taking this bold and likely painful step of becoming affirming for fun or for approval with any segment of society. And I'm not into self-flagellation either. But I'm utterly determined to study to show myself approved, and I've given God and the Holy Spirit a solid yes to constantly bring change into my heart and mind if he finds my ways unpleasing to him, per Psalm 139. If it means I have to take the hard way out, I'm explicitly willing to do that. And the really odd thing is that I'm finding that despite the difficult, deeply difficult process and the expectation of an extreme reaction of many family and friends, I'm really finding a deep peace in this matter. I used to reject the homophobic label applied to myself. I would insist, I'm not afraid of them, I just disagreed with the LGBTQ community's conclusions. But I've come to realize that I was, in fact, deeply afraid of quite a few things. I was afraid I'd be corrupted or polluted by spending time with them. I was afraid my faith might be damaged. I was afraid of what would happen to our society or the institutions of government and marriage that mattered so much to me. It was fear across the entire issue, constantly nagging at me as I watched what happened around me, and mixed with increasing rage at the changes I saw. So, yeah, I was homophobic. And now, not only am I finding my spirit quite settled, despite my mind still unsettled with objections that I learned for decades— I'm also finding myself at deep peace with what's happening in culture and in moments of interactions with gay and queer people that I formerly would have hurried to escape. I'm finding a fresh ability to love people that I formerly feared and hated, and somehow that just feels infinitely more Christ-like to me, mirroring how Jesus treated people, especially how he actually treated sinners. It's worth remembering that Jesus knew that everyone he encountered was a sinner. He knew that Judas would betray him, and yet he chose to fellowship intimately with him nonetheless. So in conclusion to this entire series, there there will always be much more to consider on this topic. And one should not lightly dispute the results of years of diligent pursuit of righteousness by millions of believers. However, I'm also keenly aware that the exact same segment of the American church that is currently the most vocal about gender and sexuality issues is also the exact same group that historically staunchly defended slavery to the point of joining civil war, and that opposed abolition and opposed integration and fought against interracial marriages very explicitly on scriptural grounds for hundreds of years, and was even still actively doing so within the lifetime of many older members of our society that are still alive today. For example, consider Jerry Falwell Sr. and Liberty University, which only ended its interracial dating ban in the year 2000. So as such, I tend to look askance at claims that any particular denomination or belief structure truly has a claim on doctrinal absolute truths in this area too. They've been deeply wrong before, And they came to the table with a wealth of very flawed but very confident scriptural interpretation to back it up. For the most part, for the most part, they finally admitted that they were wrong. But rather than admitting, too, that they might be wrong about other things, they deny any humility and they double down on their insistent claim that their interpretation on gender roles and sexuality is the absolute truth. Ironically, quite a bit of today's anti-LBGTQ language is identical to that formerly used to defend slavery. Go look at it. Many Christians will not recognize the parallels, but for those who've studied America's racism history, and I've done a lot of that in the last three years, it is simply strikingly clear. And this further strengthens my confidence that my original, decades-long view of such doctrine was incorrect. Well, my study and my thoughts on this topic are certainly going to continue. I find a definite responsibility in my heart to persist in wrestling with these topics, as I'm convinced that under the present circumstances, the church is doing deep harm to many of God's children, as well as to itself and the kingdom, and increasingly so as culture changes even more. We cannot lightly write off so many people. And I suspect that the Lord has allowed this issue to explode in significance at this very time for the specific purpose of addressing some church-wide doctrinal issues that truly need correction. So here's my bottom line, and these are all choices. Bottom line is this. I choose today to publicly repent of my former opposition to homosexual identity, marriage, and behavior. To transgender identity and surgery, to non-binary identity and pronouns, and other such issues I've described above, I've confidently concluded that I was wrong, and I acted unlovingly and in ways that did not honor the Lord's reputation among my fellow man. I choose to explicitly affirm LGBTQ relationships that are loving, faithful, monogamous, and married. I choose to affirm the right of LBGTQ individuals to fully serve and minister without apology or repentance in Christian organizations of all kinds. I choose to take these steps explicitly in the hope that my words, my actions, and my example can be more fully used by the Lord to minister His love and presence to all people made in His image. I choose to commit myself to learning from the Lord by the moment-to-moment guidance of the Holy Spirit in these matters, and becoming a better representative of the kingdom, and I continue to give him permission to adjust my thinking and my awareness. And, to that end, recognizing the value in hearing wise counsel from others, I commit to hearing opposition to these choices, provided that it's given graciously and lovingly, and I commit to patiently and calmly discussing these matters when challenged. So, that's my paper. I truly hope that this information has been useful to you. As I've already said, I'm not presenting this to persuade anyone, but instead to carefully document my own reasons for repenting of my previous positions. And I use that word repent carefully. It's not about feeling bad or making amends or apologizing. Repent means to change direction. And it should be pretty obvious that this is a substantial change of direction for me. So I felt that it was important for those who know me to have a very clear understanding of exactly why I'm changing direction. But if this does persuade you to change your position, I certainly welcome you along on this journey with me, and I'll be as supportive of you as possible. But more than that, I want to find out how we can minister God's love to those that the church has historically rejected and is becoming even more strident about rejecting in the future. So someone needs to teach them about Jesus' true love for them, and I hope you'll consider joining that specific work. I'm not in this to feel good about people. I'm in it to tell them about how the Lord loves them, just as they are, and to find ways to introduce them to Him for the first time. As I've said many times in the series and on my podcast Thanks for coming along on this journey with me, and I welcome you to a little bit of my world. So we'll talk again soon.